Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. Richard Ryerson here, continuing the special series brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank, a series that focuses on entrepreneurship, leadership, all that it's entailed to be. And we've got a special guest today, Bud Gates. He's a quintessential entrepreneur. He has an interesting path. Started out in the corporate arena, but in the corporate arena, he specifically sought out a company where he could be entrepreneurial, basically an intrapreneur, and sharpen his entrepreneurial skill, skills. And he did that uh, with the uh, company Wilson Sporting Goods. And I'll let him share with you the story. But I love Bud's story because it tells of a tale of, you know, it kind of goes in the face our entrepreneurs made or born. I think certainly Bud was born with certain characteristics that helped him in his journey. But most importantly, what Bud did is he saw opportunities, multiple doors and opportunities, and he wasn't afraid to go through them. And uh, it's an essential trait, a trait of curiosity, a trait of taking a step and taking jumping off the cliff and not knowing where the parachute is actually going to open, but understanding that it's going to open. And uh, Bud certainly represents all of those characteristics. He's been a chairman, a CEO of multiple companies. He's been a franchise owner of Pizza Hut franchises, Rent-A-Center, Color Time. Um, he's been a leader of multiple organizations and multiple people, and he truly gets it. He's got a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of experience, a lifetime of experience that he shares with us in this 45-minute conversation here on Dose of Leadership. Again, brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. It's a team that definitely knows what it takes to start and grow a business. They definitely know and cater to that entrepreneurial spirit. It's been exciting to have Equity Bank as a partner on the show, and it's been exciting to see them as one of the fastest-growing banks here in the Midwest. They are now listed on the NASDAQ Exchange and has locations all across Kansas, as well as Oklahoma, Missouri, and Arkansas. Clearly, I'm excited to have them on as a sponsor on this show because they know what it takes how to lead for growth. And so if your current bank feels like more of a follower than a leader, then I want you to check out my friends at Equity Bank, because they know and they understand what your needs are. So go check them out at equitybank.com. So thanks for listening. Now let's join our conversation with a great entrepreneur, a great leader, Bud Gates, here on Dose of Leadership. Well, Bud, I'm so excited to meet you and sit down with you. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here. You know, I'm always fascinated talking with entrepreneurs, lifelong entrepreneurs, particularly those that have worked both in the corporate arena and has a, as a storied entrepreneurship career. So let's go back. How did how did it start for you? And what was your passion, your dreams as you were growing up? First of all, where did you grow up? I grew up in New York, but not the New York that comes to mind, the right. big city. And I grew up in the mountains in a spectacularly beautiful place yeah. called Lake George mm. and a little town called Bolton Landing on Lake George that uh, my ancestors uh, were the first settlers right after the revolution. No so, kidding. Um, and it was a, a an I led two lives kind of a situation because I went kindergarten through 12 in one school, one building. Wow. Uh, I was 16 in my graduating class. Oh, my gosh. But in the summertime, there was this explosion of people that would come to their uh, to the lake uh, on vacation uh, and staying in the resorts or hotels, but also had their summer homes there. So all of a sudden, there's these 
people that looked different and talked different and uh, dressed differently. And so I had small town America nine months of the year and excitement uh, for the other three. So it was Amazing. a I, I can, as I look back on it, I think it's just a was a fabulous uh, um, situation to to be part of. My parents, for 30-some-odd years, had a little trolley car diner that was actually physically attached to our house. Really? So it was open 12 months a year. It had been an 1890s trolley that uh, had been split down the middle and widened four feet. There were 22 stools and seats, and uh, it became iconic. It was the pot-bellied stove of the town, but it was also nationally featured on a show called Charles Kuralt, who did a thing on it. Right, right. So... um, through that, I got to watch my parents uh, and my dad uh, and how they interfaced with people and why this be- place became so um, successful and uh, um, watched how they treated people, how they treated people who worked for them, how they treated people who came in, Right. how uh, uh, I never really – learned about prejudice because I never experienced it at home mm-hmm. because if it, it was, we didn't talk about it. It was just right. whether you were, you know, black, white, whatever. It just had no absolutely no bearing on yeah. how you treated in our place. Right. So I got some early early lessons. Um, went off to school. I was going to be a mathematician, phys- nuclear physicist. and uh, That was the dream, huh? that, to be that. Yeah, I was, I, wa- I was intrigued by NASA. I wanted to be a NASA scientist. So, right. Um, Got a math degree. Uh, uh, it was the Vietnam years, so I, I taught school for four years outside of Boston while I got a, a master's in mathematics. And um, I think I became the first school teacher maybe to ever go to Harvard Business School. But I, I, I got accepted the MBA program at Harvard, oh and uh, um, that uh, as I launched myself out of Harvard, I was determined I was going to be an entrepreneur. But my wife, who I'd met teaching, said. Uh, maybe one day, but not. You're going to be. You're going to learn business on somebody else's nickel, and uh, so uh, uh, I had to set aside my entrepreneurism for a bit while I went into the corporate ranks. Probably a good decision. Looking back, maybe you. Think? Oh yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> Those darn wives, they are smart. Sometimes <laughs> right, they yeah. do. They got that intuition. Yeah. yeah. Interesting though. So you come out of Harvard. Okay. So, and I would imagine, obviously, you're talking. You, you can see the lessons crystal clear of watching. Uh, this family run this diner. But I suppose when you're in the middle of it, maybe you didn't see those readily, right? It's like it's on reflection back. No, you, it's you, like reverse them, right? osmosis or something. It, it seeped in. Yeah. But uh, um, it became part of you. I mean, obviously, right? Yeah. 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 The epiphany was uh, I was, we were teaching and I married my wife and her family was in business in New York City. Right. So, and her sister and brother and all lived in the same town and they had a big business so and I got involved in management in school right away mm-hmm. and I became head of the math department for the school and I was negotiating this teachers contract I was vice president of the teachers association so I I had a small business background I was immersed with family bigger business I was involved in leadership and management right. in the school and one night, it just occurred to me that I needed to go to business school. Yeah, and that's that was my transformation. And and that's when you went to Har- to Harvard, right? right. Mm-hmm. How was that? I mean, you know, the cream of the crop, the most challenging MBA program it seems in the states, anyway. How was that experience? 
No, it's the best two years of my life. Really? Uh, my my best friends uh, are with me today. Uh, we we get together regularly. We we are. Uh, it was the first time I found a, a collection in one place of people that were um, um, more like me. Sounds like a bad way of saying it, but I yeah you know, they, they were they were. I know what you're fun mean. and interesting and exciting and. Uh, uh, the, the group I settled in with liked sports and we liked travel and we liked wine and you know it was just right. it was just a, a a lot of simpatico a lot of a lot of stuff that was good and then and given the fact that right you're kind of cut from the same cloth or you're finding your tribe there and then you go through that two years of let's face it hardship and hell right and yeah. it forged that bond even closer yeah. right? like you said true. with friends today right? true uh, but you know um, I, I didn't. Well, well, you had to work fairly hard. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't find it very so much difficult. I mean, I thought math and nuclear physics were a lot more difficult, right, than that uh, academically. Uh, but uh, it was challenging other parts of you, right? Because sure. it wasn't just how well you could think; it was how you could speak and 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 lead and and mm-hmm. talk and write. And so it was it was getting all the all the pieces and parts a bit together, right? And and beginning to learn about. You know what you might be able to do. Yeah, and so you come out of that. Mm-hmm. You feel prepared to do what at that moment, and what did you want to do with that? Well, in spite of the fact that I was a a math guy, I wanted to do marketing. So I, really, I was not only was I a weird you know, upstate New York from the Thule's school teacher. Uh, if that would make me weird enough, I was a math guy who wanted to do marketing. So, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you know, I I I, uh, I settled in on a job. Uh, with Wilson Sporting Goods, okay, uh, um, who was part of PepsiCo back time, right? Uh, what year are we talking about here? Nineteen seventy-four. Seventy-four. Yeah, it was a. I had Mitt Romney was in my class, and George Bush no was uh, in the, the. He was a. The, it's a two-year program, so uh-huh. he and I overlapped. We used to play basketball together. Oh, we are. Yeah, as I say, uh, somebody asked me once, yeah. W- what about now President Bush? And I said he was a pretty good athlete. We, we, we <laughs> played he? basketball against each other a lot. And they said, well, did you beat him? I said, yeah, he, he couldn't go to his left. <laughs> I love it. You're a comedian too. <laughs> Very nice. So you, you come out and you go to Wilson. And wh- what was that like? You go in as a marketing guy? You got hired as a marketing I guy? I go into the marketing department, but they were intrigued by the math skills. So they wanted me to huh. acquire things to see if they could – be on an acquisition. Uh, and I looked at a variety of things, one of which, interesting, was Coleman Camping Company in right, Wilson's, right. In, 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 to be part of Wilson uh, in Wichita, Kansas, which uh, uh, didn't, uh, didn't um, uh, end up being anything. But after uh, about a year or so there, uh, I wanted to – they had a, a dying, very small, like $1 million um, athletic footwear business that had been the mainstay of both – Baseball and basketball, uh, baseball and football shoes, uh, you know, with the old leather soles, right, beautiful right. things. And uh, uh, they were getting ready to close their plant up in Wisconsin. And I said, I, I'd like, give me that business. Let me have it. I'll, I'll do something with it. They said, no, we're not going to waste it on, on you. We, we find something else to do. But I, I was persistent, and they gave me the athletic footwear business. Okay. And um, f- fantastic uh, – uh, I, I said, well, uh, how do I really transform this thing? So I had three ideas. One was to try to buy this company that has just started out. 
out of the trunk of this guy's car. And I, I talked to him, and he was interested in selling. He said, let me think about it over the weekend. And uh, then he said, no, I don't think so. A guy named Phil Knight, and it was Nike. No way. Uh, I wanted to be – the other idea was to be the U.S. distributor of a, of a German company called Puma. <laughs> uh, so I – Flew to uh, I flew to uh, Germany and uh, to this town I can't pronounce. I think it's like Herzogenau. Uh-huh. Uh, it's near Nuremberg, and uh, it was unbelievable. You go to this town, and it's down one side it says Adidas, and down the other side it says Puma. No kidding. And it was two brothers, uh, Addy Dassler Adidas and Rudy Dassler Puma. I did not know that. Who. Uh, you know, divorced and married each other's wives, and it was a, it was like what? the Hatfields and the McCoys, oh and it was a, one of the most fascinating days of my life, <laughs> a meeting with Rudy Dassler and uh, and putting together a deal, which ultimately uh, couldn't happen because they had an ironclad agreement mm-hmm. with a, a, another company. So my third option was to go with the largest shoe company in the world, Bata B A T A, which was a. Uh, they, they were making like a million pairs of shoes a day in a hundred countries of the world, and so. It was kind of a technological play, and that's what I ended up doing. And uh, got very fortunate right off the bat. Uh, John Wooden, who was the icon of college basketball, sure. I uh, teamed up with him. We did the John Wooden basketball shoe. Oh, I picked one college team in America. It happened to be Magic Johnson and the national champions. We were on the cover of Sports <laughs> Illustrated. Uh, I had Kenny the Snake Stabler, who was my oh, football wow. guy. He wins, the, he wins the Super Bowl as the MVP. And uh, uh, for a runner, I had uh, Bill Rogers, who was the turned out to be pretty good himself. So uh, the business just took off like a rocket, and that one million dollar business was thirty three million the next year. Amazing. So amazing! That was my business propeller, if you will. Well, that is huge coming right out of. So, how many years out of Harvard is this? I mean, is this uh, your f- three? Four, th- wow, three and four. I, I picked Wilson for a reason. A, I love sports. Uh, right. Uh, but it was clearly, to me, going to be an entrepreneurial opportunity within the confines of a business. You knew that play then. I mean, you had the tactical yeah. foresight to yeah. see that then, Because right? some of the other – I remember talking to Procter & Gamble, who uh, uh, recruited me pretty hard. And uh, I remember talking. I said, so, so uh, you want me to start out being like the associate business marketing manager so I can become the assistant business manager so I can become eventually the business manager. I said, yeah. Uh, how long will that take? Well, I mean, if you're if you're really good, within seven years, you could be the business manager. So I said, well, I'm seven years before I can make a decision. They said, well, you can't make a decision then, You'll be, but you'll be recommending to – Oh, my and gosh. And I, I, I knew that that wasn't for that me. That wasn't for you. That wasn't for yeah. me. That's a fascinating story, bud. I mean – to have that foresight then, and then to hit it out of the park out of then. I mean, were you seen as the wonder kid at that point? I mean, did they? Well, how did, I, how did they? How I, did that? Was I, that received? Obviously, <laughs> well, uh, I don't know about wonder kid, but it was a good deal. Sure. And, uh, that uh, the guy that had hired me out of the business school at Harvard had gone to the business school himself, uh, as well as undergraduate Harvard, and he had gone to after gone to Wilson Sporting Goods, and he was head of tennis. And he went from being the head of tennis at Wilson to the executive vice president of a company called Pizza Hut in Wichita, Kansas. Yeah. So uh, he called me one day and said – You're still at Wilson. I'm still at Wilson. He said, I'd like you you to come work for me. I said, where are you? He said, I'm in Wichita, Kansas. And jokingly, I said, okay, where's that? (laughs) I I, I was reasonably good at geography. 
And I joke, we had just had the worst winter in many, many years in Chicago where we had, uh, I'd gone two and a half months without seeing daylight, basically. Oh I'd leave at 5 a.m. in the morning. It took me three hours to get to work. I'd leave at three hours. five o'clock at night. I get home at eight. Uh, oh my lord! It was unbelievable. And I had a young, a young daughter. I, I, I'd tuck her, to kiss her, guy. We'd have dinner at nine o'clock. I'd go back to sleep, and that was it, right? So I jokingly said, uh, "What's uh, what's the weather down there?" And he says, "Well, I'm playing golf this afternoon." I said, "No, no, no. But how much snow do you have?" He says. I'm playing golf this afternoon. I said, Don, it's the first week of March. How much snow do you have? He says, Bud, it's 63 degrees here, and I'm playing golf this afternoon. I said, give me two weeks. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in Wichita. I love that. And here we are. This is 77, 78? 79. 79? Yep. This is the peak of Pizza Hut. Man, you talk about Pizza Hut and the franchise. I mean, this is the heyday of Pizza no, Hut. No, not yet. I not mean, yet? It's, it's the, it was the... It was post the heyday of the rapid expansion, mm. but it was not the the and the early years. But uh, now all of a sudden it wasn't quite. And uh, the seventy seven, I believe, is when PepsiCo had bought Pizza okay. Hut. Right? All right. Okay. And uh, um, I remember going to the local Pizza Hut in Chicago where I was living with my wife because I'd been offered this job, and I said, all right, let me, let's me let go see what this looks like before I take the job. So we went to the local Pizza Hut, and it was a horrific experience. The place was dirty. It was this, like, uh, lavash type of a crust. Uh, you know, we'd grown up on the East Coast with, yeah, with a whole pizza. different kind of yeah. pizza, and we'd been living in Chicago with all the pan and the deep pe- mm-hmm. dip dish pizzas. And so we finished that experience, and she said, well, I said, I guess we're not going to move. She was happy. She was a New York City girl. She, Chicago was a step down in scale for her So in Boston. So she said, well, I guess we're not going to Kansas. I said, oh, yeah, I'm taking this job. She says, you got to be kidding me. That was terrible. I said, right. If the number one place for pizza in America is not good, what could it be if it was really great? Right. And, of course, I love that. that's, what we, that's, that's what got me here. And, that's the one, then and what took, did you do when you got here? What was the job? Um, I think the somebody called it. The, I was the director of drinking straws, uh, but I was <laughs> I was the director of auxiliary products marketing, which meant it was anything that nobody wanted. It was like sandwiches or pastas or mm-hmm. something like that. You know, not the core of the business. And how did? And what was the experience? What was the what was the remarkable um, achievements there, or notable notable memories there? Uh, I was there about less than a month, and uh, was pretty bored. So I, I, I talked to some of the. I looked at some of the numbers uh, on my own, and uh, I saw that carry out, carry out was a pretty small part of the business. Uh, I talked to some of the operators and two of the, and carry out was the most profitable part of the business because you know you weren't tying up a seat. Sure. You know, so. Uh, so I asked for some research dollars to uh, figure out why, what we have to do, what's wrong with our, why, why couldn't we be more, do more of our carryout? And they said, well, we don't have any research dollars. So there was this big shopping mall called Town East. So I took Saturday and Sunday on my own. I went over to Town East. I sat there, put a little sign up, gave out a free pizza coupon to people who would answer. And I, I'd ask them, say, what do you think about Pizza Hut carryout? And paraphrasing it said I didn't know you had it uh, it's confusing when I get there because I don't know where to it's just like well, I'm walking right in the middle of a restaurant 
And, uh, you know, it's all the pizza all sticks to the paper bag you put in. That was called the sack and circle. It was a circle of cardboard with a paper bag over it. Oh, my God. So, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know you had it. I didn't know where to sit. And yet your packaging was terrible. So I put together a TV commercial. I put a bench inside the front door with a sign that said, pick up here. And I did a massive thing called getting a pizza box. <laughs> no kidding. And uh, carry out dramatically improved. I want to say we had, it went from 15% of our business to 25% of our business. And the marginal flow through, as you would say, in, in the financial world was immense. And it was a big idea. That got me promoted to, to a vice president of marketing. Oh, you darn. Yep. I love that story. This is, it's the simplicity. It's like, how do you teach somebody to see the big picture? You know, as a pilot, I'm, we're always doing that. We're always, the whole idea about flying a plane is like, how do you pull somebody back to see the big picture, right? Because accident after accident after accident is because somebody's channel locked yeah. on something, yeah. right? And so you're always trying to pull yourself back. You, you intuitively are doing it. And I don't know if it's your mathematical brain or if it's what you've been taught. I mean, does that, does that make sense to you that, yeah, you're a big picture guy, right? You can see things. I'm a much people. better big picture guy than I am a day to day run it guy. I'm, right. I'm, you know, I've always I can run things really well for about a month, month and a half, maybe two, and I get bored. You get bored. I, I, right? I'm not good at it. Yeah. Um, you know, eventually I became you know senior VP of. Uh, well, uh, we did Pan Pizza in 1980, which did a billion dollars the first year. Huge, right? Yeah, and I. I, you know, I'd, I'd taken that on. How did you come up with that? Did you come up with that, or was that a group, a collective group thing, or what? It, it was a collective group thing. It was, it was already uh, there was something in the works, uh, and but I'd just come from Chicago, so right. Uh, I put a little uh, when I got that. Um, it was really a marketing play at that point in time. A lot of the R and D had been done, but two years later, I mean, I, we also didn't have much lunch business, so same. Same thing is kind of a with, so why don't we have much lunch business? Well, pizza is too slow and it's too much food. Okay, well, why don't we make it small and quick? So that was the invention of the personal, the personal pan pizza, pan. which um, we rolled it out in test and it massively flopped. Really? So I asked why. And uh, customers said, well, I just don't believe you. I've only got 45 minutes off for lunch. By the time I drive over here and back, I got 28 minutes for actual lunch. And uh, I can't risk you getting my pizza to me on time. So we had 4,000 some odd stores at that time. We put little individual wind-up timers on each table. And we put it at five minutes. And we said, if when that thing goes off, if the pizza isn't here, it's free. And we did the national TV commercial. I remember that. Well, it did four hundred million after that. Wow! <laughs> uh, simple idea, right? Yeah. I, I don't believe you. Okay. Well, let me de-risk it for you. It, at least you're going to get a free meal if I'm late. You may be a little hungry and have to go back to work without lunch, but you're, gonna, you're not going to be out anything because it's going to be on me. Well, people were there hoping. Yeah, that you that, wouldn't get. That you, they were going. I got seventeen seconds left. Sixty. Oh no, it's coming. Yeah. So it that. became. I'm, I remember going to Pizza Hut and having a timer put on my. T- I remember yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love the simple. I love. I, I'm always fascinated by the the simple ideas that, you know, 
an outsider sees something, a fresh perspective, something, and it changes the whole game, right? Well, the, the personal pan then became um, – it spawned a lot of things because to do that, we had to have an oven. So uh, right. we developed the first mini oven that you see in every airport mm-hmm. around the world today that uh, came from trying to figure out how to execute that idea. But the whole Book It program, which is the largest reading program in the history of America, was spawned from that because – you know, uh, it was like, uh, if we can get kids to read, we'll give you a pre- little mini pizza. That's right. And if everybody in your class, everybody in your class can do it, then we'll give a pizza party for the entire thing. Well, you know, it not only did it encourage millions and millions of children to read, but, you know, they when they came to get their free pizza, they brought mom and dad and their aunts and uncles and grandparents, and they all, you know, bought pitchers of beer and big pizzas and salads and you know, yeah. it, it was a business generator too, but uh, the the personal pan uh, is what really allowed that idea to, to happen. Hey, we're about halfway through the conversation, but I wanted to take the time to talk about my good friends, the sponsor here of the special series at Equity Bank. Have you ever noticed that most business bankers seem to really understand just one thing? It's banking, right? And not a lot about business. It makes sense since most banks were built generations ago and now they're often run by caretakers, not business builders. Well, it's not the case here at Equity Bank. The bankers at Equity Bank didn't inherit a bank generations ago. They built one of their own. They know that building something takes expertise, vision, and hard work. And over the past decade, they've built one of the region's fastest growing banks by working side by side with customers, with entrepreneurs, with leaders in communities all throughout Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Recently, Equity Bank was listed on the NASDAQ exchange, which gives them even greater capabilities to take on those big deals that growing businesses need to keep on growing. So if you're tired of talking to bankers who've never really ran or owned or built a business, then I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised when you talk to my friends at Equity Bank. Thanks for listening to this show. Let's get back to the conversation, this unique and special series on leadership and entrepreneurship brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. I love how, again, doors open other doors, opportunities going through, and as you can, and obviously you can't really see that till you have the perspective. It's kind of like walking up the path. You don't know where it's teaching you, but then when you look back, oh, that's where it led me, right? And you can see that now, and like how these doors open other doors. But it begs the question, I think, for people who are just starting out or who seem stuck, I'm a big proponent of, you know, if you're faced with multiple opportunities, multiple doors, or even if the door doesn't even look that appealing and it's the only door available, go through it because you never know. You know what I mean? It always leads to something else. Your life seems to be – that seems to be your life philosophy anyway. Well, you know, you just stirred a thought. Um, I'm I'm my senior year – second year at Harvard Business School. I've got – I can't remember. I think I had – Boiled it down. I had seven job opportunities, okay, mm-hmm. well, seven offers. And I went to uh, my favorite professor who was an iconic professor, uh, and uh, Earl Sasser. And I said, I want you to give me some guidance on this. So I laid out the seven uh, job offers, and he cut through it like a knife. He said, well, these, for, these four are all BS. He said, you don't care about those. You're just bragging to me because you got seven job offers. <laughs> I went, okay, you got me on that one. He said, of these three, he says, uh, he says, you know, I'm from the South. He said, you know, if you go to hunt a porcupine, do you, what do you do? You go for that soft underbelly. You don't know where all the quills are. 
He said, so of these jobs, where's the soft underbelly? Because you know what, bud? You're going to work super hard at every one of these. So if X is if, – if you're, if you're going to work hard at every one of them, the, which one has the – not just the greatest rewards, like twice as many rewards or three times as many rewards, however you define rewards – and that's what got me to Wilson Sporting Goods. Yeah. Because I said, you know, uh, I don't want to be I, – I was 28 years old when I got out of business school because I'd taught school for four years and so forth. I, I, I can't be 35 years old or 38 years old when I make my first decision in one of these right. big, 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 you know, mm-hmm. wonderful companies like Procter & Gamble or whatever. I said – and the one that was most entrepreneurial was Wilson. Yeah. And so – it was a macro entrepreneurial call, and I will have to admit, um, I love sports. But uh, long story, but all my other jobs basically uh, were pretty much concentrated in San Francisco because I I wanted to go. I wanted it, it had an allure to me, so I yeah. kind of so I, I I shunned my primary strategy before I went and did all this stuff, which was to go to San Francisco. I took the job in Chicago, which uh, um, because it was entrepreneurial. Yeah. And, and and it led you to the point where they got here, and then so you you go to Pizza Hut, and eventually you become a franchisee. Um, when I left Pizza Hut, again the entrepreneurial, uh, I, I left Pizza Hut to go to to Rena Center, uh, but um, I bought a Pizza Hut franchise in upstate New York, three stores, uh, and I bought them as I left, and uh, so when I started out. At Rena Center, I was also a Pizza Hut franchisee, which was, uh, you know, almost unheard of. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, that's what I did. And while I became, uh, you know, within a year, I was president of of uh, a lesson. I think eight months later, I was president of Rena Center, uh, and then became chairman of the the acquiring company of Rena Center. But for those next 20 years, I was a Pizza Hut franchisee and grew that to 10 stores. And when I took the job at Rena Center, I made as part of the deal that I would buy all the territory between basically New York City and Montreal, upstate New York, where I'm from. I would pay full price. We had a formula that uh, Tom Devlin and I worked out. But my golden handcuff was is that every year I stayed, I got 10% off that price. And I stayed 10 years. So I think you can do the math. <laughs> right. So Not I picked all of that up for free. Yeah. Which I became a 10-store a, a rent-a-center franchise. So uh, I was my entrepreneurial career was launched. Wow. And I'm always fascinated. I love – there's so many things I want to ask on the front. You've had such a wide variety of experience, such a storied experience. At some point, and every entrepreneur I've had on this show and we talked, at some point, you know, what when we talk about the entrepreneur and we talk we look at the famous ones here in the town and, and we look at the characteristics and we do the study and it's the maverick, the individual, the creativity, the um non adherence to standards and rules and breaking out of the box and the mold and all this thing. At some point though, Particularly when you get to the levels that we're talking about, the renter centers, the pizza huts, doing all the things, you you have to transition or at least become aware of your leadership style and your ability, right? Did, did, you know, at some point, every entrepreneur I've talked to said, 
at some point, I got to realize that leadership and entrepreneurship, if I'm going to be a legacy building one, right, be sustainable, leadership has to be part of my vernacular. Did that happen for you? It, it certainly does, did. Um, and I think you're, you, you, you hone your leadership style as you grow, go and grow. Sure. Um, and, then, and you don't even know you're doing it necessarily early right. on because you're just trying to trying to survive and get through the next trying to run things and you know Mm -hmm. but particularly once i became a ceo um then uh you i I had enough learning behind me or enough cognizance to kind of take a look at what i was doing to, to begin to focus on leadership style and um probably i would break it down into just a couple of very simple things um First of all, you have to know who you are. And I knew I was a visionary, um, idea-driven, um, uh, you know, create, create the vision and sell the vision and motivate kind of a person. I would not be a great CEO of a, we need to cut costs and downsize this business. I, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't be good at that. So I, um, but also how you treat people. And uh, maybe to a fault sometimes, but I always uh, took an interest in my people and let them know I did take an interest in my people. And treat everybody with dignity and respect. Um, and a simple two-by-two two matrix, which was one axis was performance and the other one was, I'll call it, do it the right way. And it, it's a pretty simple idea that I got from Jack Welsh, who was the... Mm-hmm the head of GE, which is, you know, it's pretty easy to what you do in that lower left box. You're a poor performer who does it the wrong way. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> right. And it's pretty easy to see what you do with the upper right box. You're a great performer and you do everything the right way. Promote, give you money. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you do? But success in management is what you do with the other two boxes. Mm-hmm. Don't perform, but do things the right way. You're the first person in the office. You smile. You got to think, well, that person, you give another chance. You got to tell them. But ultimately, they got their hand in everybody's pocket if they can't perform. You, you can't. But you, 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 you. That person, you give another shot to. You or you try to find a job that they can do because right. they're positive. But you know. But the hard one, the one that most people make make a mistake with, is <clears throat> the other one, which is the number one performer. But they do that. The they're doing way. it. You know, uh, and they're the cancer in your organization, mm. and you got to have the guts to get rid of them. So true. So true, right? And we hate doing that because we're so well, lured by the bottom line, no, you're, right? You're, 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 you're intrigued by their, you know, yeah. you're, you're wedded to their performance, but you don't realize the the uh, the catastrophes that are going on that you can't see around it. The yep. people who are demotivated, who mm-hmm. quit, who move on, who because this guy or this person, this is is, is oh boy, yeah, is bad. And we've all seen it. And, we've all know, been there. Yeah, that's the biggest mistakes I made in my life, all the way up through, and, and eventually began to really get it right <laughs> in my latter years. Yeah. yeah. In the legacy building aspect of it. That's just fascinating. I love that. And I love that you said, number one, the self-awareness piece. I can't agree with you more. Time and time again, we've talked about on this show how critical that is in your journey, uh, the self-awareness, knowing exactly who you are, and then being comfortable with it, too. I think a lot of times on that self-awareness piece, we know what we're not so good at, what we we, we kind of stink at. 
and we spend 80% of our time trying to fix with that. I'm kind of the, I've learned, I'm, I'm going to bet on my strengths. I'm going to bet on your strengths if we're working together, right? I'm going to be less concerned about your weaknesses or whatever we consider your, your pitfalls. If we focus on the strengths and then we can augment the weaknesses, we can work on them a little bit, but I don't know. I made the mistake of trying to, in both my people and myself, um, trying to fix the weaknesses, 80% of that. And I should have been 80% on my A players and my strengths and playing my zone, right? And uh, what do you think I about think, that? I think uh, directionally correct, yeah. But particularly when you get – when I became a, a CEO, uh, then I really had to – when I f- concentrated on putting together a management team, um, I, I – Done some work with a, a, a great Israeli consultant named uh, Itzhak Adizas, who a uh, uh, pretty simple concept. But you know, if you if you stereotypically look, you want your you want your your marketer to have a, an idea a minute, you know. And I say, here's what we want to do. It's a great idea. And the next day he comes, in, forget that idea. I got a better one. Right? <laughs> That's the stereotypical marketer. Right. Your stereotypical finance person is all right. Let's get the form right. Let's get the you know. And your operator says, "All right, just give me a number and get out of my way. Let me go. Let me go make that number, right?" right. And your HR person says, "How do we feel about this?" <laughs> right. Now, um, that's taking it to an extreme. But you, I think, you want in those function areas someone who's each one heading in those directions, right? And that the diversity of your team is everything. Yep, agreed. Then, when you get your team together, you can say. I want all the ideas out. Yeah, I want the dissent. I want this and that. But once the decision is made, right, and I'm making the decision, then all of that dissent goes away, and now we all pull the oars together. Amen. And you got to be, you got to be, if you're on the team, you got to have the complete uh, confidence that you can say anything you want while we lead up to the decision. But once it's made. A hundred percent committed to making it work. Amen. I said a lot of people get the first part, <clears throat> but they do not get the second part. You know, they, they, then they continue to be a cancer. That's right. Well, I know we made this decision, uh, but you know, I don't, how are you feeling about it? You know, then that and that's the one where I said about the, that two by two matrix and the one that's got to go. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk to them once, say, hey, you know, you're 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 subversive. You're you you know. You have, you have a new idea. If once the decision is made and you still have bad thoughts about it, come to me personally, mm-hmm. right? But never to anybody never. else. I, I'm so glad you said that. I was just talking about this the other day, and I do think that is probably the biggest number one problem that I see in organizations. And I'm with you. You and I can sit there, close that door. We're gnashing teeth throwing F-bombs at each other, disagreeing because it's about the – and as long as it's not about egos and power, it's about the business. Whatever we come to the resolution, whatever it's my decision or yours, I walk out there, it's coming out like it's that it's mine. Yeah, that's right? right. And I cannot, I cannot, I cannot give any indication that I'm not behind this 100%, right? When you get that team right, the diversity of personalities and talents and skills – and the commitment to once the decision is made, then you got a team. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, the 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 other thing that I've done throughout my life is I break everybody down into knowledge, skills, and traits. I mean, I say somebody comes in and they're a candidate for a job. I look at their knowledge, skills, and traits, and I think the big mistake everybody makes is that they hire for knowledge. Oh, he's very mm-hmm. experienced. 
Um, well, smart people can acquire almost any kind of knowledge. Now, skills, yeah, maybe you can acquire a lot of them. You're never going to get me to be a typist or, you know, uh, but uh, you can acquire a lot of skills. I can teach you how to do Excel and I can teach you to do this and that. Traits? Traits? No. That's right. I don't think I've ever changed any hardly. I think you're right. And the traits about, you know, hard work, honesty, integrity, yep. uh, team play, um, competitive drive. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the things that really, really matter are the hardest to interview for, to sort for. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't – you can take an intelligence test. You can take a skill test. How do you take a traits test, right? Uh, yeah, 100%. I mean, talent doesn't – I mean – to what you're saying is talent equals results, and talent doesn't necessarily equal results, right? I mean, it's the character traits that you can't teach. And when you get them in, we've all been there, right? We've hired based on knowledge and experience and what we consider talent, and we've been burned every single time, right? If you if you look at Charles Koch's readings, if you think about really kind of what's going on there, I mean, in a much more elegant way than I just said it, um, you know, he's basically hiring for traits, right? right. He's saying, you know, give me – a bunch of, you know, uh, hardworking, you know, honest, uh, you know, bought-in Midwestern types. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'll, I'll make a I'll make a – I'll uh, teach the other stuff to them. I'll, I'll teach the other stuff to them. Yeah. Right. I love it. But what a fascinating story. What's excited? What are you excited about next? I mean, there's so much I could dig in and talk to you about, but for the sake of time, what's next for you? As, you know, what are you excited for now? Well, I, I – uh, I quote uh, fully retired uh, pretty much as of uh, last spring. Okay. So I uh, I, I took the summer off and uh, I'm back from the summer and um, bored. <laughs> so uh, I I, uh, I want to find something that I can sink my teeth into. Not run, not run. run. I, I'll let somebody younger with a, a more energy than I have, but. Uh, I'd like to do something, uh, um, sit on a board, uh, um, mm -hmm. help somebody in a, in a startup, uh, play, a, play a role of some sort. And I have sorted that out. I'm not, you know, desperate to, uh, to jump into something. I, I, something's going to have to present itself. And I, yeah. you know, I keep poking and prodding and looking. Um, I'm helping a couple of nonprofits. Uh, I'm the co-founder of HealthCore, which is the, yeah. the, the big um, – we just built a big new building right yep. there at 21st, just west of WSU. So uh, I work with Teresa on that, and uh, Teresa Lovelady, who's doing a fantastic job. And uh, I've got a couple of uh, things in upstate New York that I'm helping out with and sinking my teeth into. And uh, uh, I got a couple of people, young people, I'm mentoring, which is fun. Yeah, and maybe that's maybe that's what it is. But uh, if something different comes along. Uh, I still got some gas in the tank. So. Yeah. Well, I love it. I really appreciate sitting down with you. I'm glad to know you and, and look forward to, to staying in touch with you. And so appreciative of the knowledge and the nuggets that you've given us on this show. Last question. A lot of times, I've, especially young hard chargers I've seen and, and some that have worked for me and, and even myself, and, and as I approach 50 and I sit there and I've asked the questions, I always like asking people, they said they want to be successful and I'm saying, what, is, what does significance look like to you as opposed to success like to you? And so I'm asking you that question. What does a significant life look like for you? Well, I think, you know, you, you got to live with yourself. Yeah. So uh, uh, 
are you proud of what you do and who you are? I mean, that, um, it, it, are the pluses better than the minuses? Because we've all made mistakes. We've got things we've mistakes we've made personally, and in terms mm -hmm. of uh, who we are, we've got mistakes we've made in business. So anybody who says they never had either, I, they really are sainthood, or they're not telling the truth. <laughs> right. um, and uh, I, I'm I'm not. I'm not disappointed in my life. I know what I started out with. I know what I did along the way. I know all the people that I helped along the way, and that's 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 really good stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I because of my Pizza Hut experience, my Rena Center experience, and Heroes and BG Boltons and all the stuff of the businesses I've had here in town. People are always coming up to me, and you know, I, some I remember and some I don't. We had 600 employees at Rena Center, but some people come up and say, you know. It was the greatest place I ever worked, you know, and uh, um, so that's good stuff. Yeah, you know, you know you, you, hindsight's twenty twenty. You wish you could take back every bad decision you ever made, right? So right. you can't. So you got to say, okay, do the pluses outweigh the minuses? Yeah, I think they do. Yeah, and and not to be the whole nature of this interview leads you to kind of a. Uh, you know, a, a, an egotistical kind of sounding approach because you don't want to hear me say, well, I didn't do anything. It was all my people. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is uh, your people always are a big part of your success. Yeah. And now you, you as a leader, whatever level leader you are, uh, either selected those people or groomed them or, or rounded them out. So you, you got a piece of their success too that's in you. But anytime you talk about something, particularly in a big organization, like, yeah, I mean, personal pan pizza, I mean, I had a lot to do with, right? But I had engineers that invented the oven. I had I had people in the R&D lab who came up with a, a way to do it. I had people that invented a, a, a thing to hold it with. I had the actual people who produced the commercial. You go on and on right. and on and on. So you, you might be that nugget of the idea, but then as a big company or, Can't or even any size company, yeah. it, it just, it's got to filter down through people who can translate that vision into yeah. reality. And for the part they own, that most, most of the time, they're going to do the part they own vastly better than you could do. Absolutely. No, well, right. then, and you, you may think it comes across as egotistical because we've been talking about you and yourself. But let me tell you, bud, I, you emanate um, uh, a humble, teachable spirit, which I think is is tantamount to a successful and significant leader. And you have a level of intensity, right, that I think is tantamount and necessary for a significant life or successful leadership. And that combination of that intensity of will coupled with that humble, teachable spirit and where they intersect, that's a quality leader, and that's what I see in you. And so I appreciate you coming on the show. So don't feel like <laughs> we've been talking about you and it's been egotistical. I, I love your approach, and, and I know that everybody's valuing what you said. So thanks for coming on the show. Good to be here. Thank you. Thanks, bud. Hey, thanks for listening to this special entrepreneurial and leadership series of Dose of Leadership brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. Make sure you, to subscribe to Dose of Leadership where you can hear more great stories in this unique and special series. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a listen to all of my Dose of Leadership podcasts and all of my episodes and see why Fortune, Entrepreneur, and Inc. Magazine all recommend this as a must-listen. Dose of Leadership features candid conversations with amazing guests 
leading high-performing experts and organizations, large and small, all over the world. Find Dose of Leadership on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and go ahead and visit doseofleadership.com where you can find out more information about the show, myself, my speaking engagements, my keynotes, live seminars, and my mastermind events. Thanks for tuning in, and have a great day.